I think we need to be more open to mistakes and kind of screwing it up. Everyone, well, not everyone is traumatized, but there is a lot of trauma right. in the room around gender as an issue and then consent and that kind of stuff, especially. At some points, it's going to be really difficult. At some points, someone's going to overstep, someone's going to say something, someone's just going to articulate something badly. Right. Today's conversation is about lots of things. The main thrust of it is around masculinity, both in boyhood and in manhood. A big part of the conversation is about rape, sexual assault, sexual violence, trauma, those kinds of things. The conversation doesn't contain any descriptions and it's actually a very relaxed and fun and pleasant conversation, but it is around those topics frequently. So if you don't want to hear at all about those topics today, then this episode probably isn't for you. Speaking of masculinity and those kinds of topics, I've recently written a piece that I've put out on Medium called What About the Women, which covers and expands on a lot of the things that I talk about in today's conversation. And all of that is generally part of the work I've been doing around masculinity, which hopefully will result finally in a book called Mansplaining Masculinity. But the only way that it can become a book is if you pre-order that book in advance, pledge some money now, and that can help make that book happen. Otherwise, we'll just have to make do with all of the work I've done up to this point, which includes a solo show about masculinity, a piece on Radio 4, and a survey of a thousand men's thoughts on patriarchy and masculinity, all of which you can find out more about at mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And I'm afraid there will also be further adverts for this later in the episode. But please do remember that the thing about adverts on a podcast is you can always skip ahead. So hopefully they shouldn't interrupt you too much. It's not an absolute failing of the conversation if something uncomfortable happens. It's a failing of the conversation if we can't then deal with that in a way which is kind of appropriate and compassionate to the to the people involved. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Tanaka. Hello, Tanaka. Hi. <laughs> Hello. And it's a really sunny day in late October, so an inappropriately sunny day, um, but a but a hot and, and nice one. Um, and we're recording where you live. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for 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 having me uh, over, and thanks for the tea and the biscuits. And we've conveniently chosen the warmest room in the in the flat, which I did not think about beforehand. Right, but... the hot seat. <laughs> right. You live in an area that's very familiar to me. Because I used to work nearby, mm. and so I've been sort of walking around, going through memory <laughs> lane, but also getting lunch at my favourite place to get kebabs in London. Um, so uh, if I'm not thinking very well, it's because I've just eaten quite a, a large <laughs> meal. Uh, so apologies uh, to the listeners uh, about that, but no apologies to me because I'm living my best life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a great area. I so I grew up near here as well, and it. It feels like it's on that slight gentrification curve, which is interesting. Right. Like there are now two cafes with slate 
menus and stuff near me, which was not not the vibe. Yeah, I was noticing that walking <laughs> around actually. Yeah, like I, I kind of planned to kill some time in in, in in Starbucks. Other chain coffee shops are available, of course, but uh, but that had closed down. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the 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 gentrified form of cafes was was all, was all around where that Starbucks yeah. was, and I was like. I don't know if this is good or bad. I don't approve of mm. Starbucks, but I, this is a different kind of chain that's happening. Mm-hmm. It, may, it may be by individual uh, kind of artisan, uh, you know, coffee. I, I'm not saying I don't prefer the coffee, but it's still, <laughs> it's still a, an interesting effect mm. to have on an area, right? Yeah. I'm noticing, though, at the moment anyway, that a lot of the people I know are still here. Like, the people I grew up with are still around and they're working in the new coffee shops right yeah that's interesting i guess that's a positive sign you know it's not like it's not like people are being supplanted right or anything like that i mean generally probably i if i had to choose a side between kind of uh gentrified coffee shops and uh chain coffee shops (laughs) probably on the side of the gentrification in that particular well i I don't even think of a word for it that Mm. dynamic Mm -hmm. um but not generally yeah yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird uh, what's happening to this city. Hmm. I mean, I no longer live in it now, so I'm kind of coming as a visitor, and uh, I miss lots of things about it, but I also, yeah, coming back to it, having had a break away as well, makes everything more kind of even clearer, the hmm. things that I don't like that are happening to this city that I, that I love, yeah. I mean, you've, have you lived here all your life? I have, yeah, apart from four years when I was at university. I've been in London, but I had a bit of a weird... I, so I went to school in Hertfordshire, um, which was a fun 60 to 90 minute commute every <laughs> every day, right. each way. Um, but yeah, so I actually didn't spend a lot of my week here so weekends almost felt like being on holiday even though I was living in in London but yeah so it's like so much of it is nostalgic so much of my daily life at the moment is walking around in nostalgia and I the flat we were in I uh was my aunt so I grew up in it and not grew up in it but I you know spent Sunday afternoons here I learned to walk in this room like right so it's, yeah, yeah, that's that's strange, isn't it? <laughs> I, I did that when I moved to London. I kind of moved into to the area where I'd always gone for holidays all my mm. life because it was where my family were. And then I ended up living in my sister's house that I'd gone visiting. And so it's a similar, I guess, my sister's like aunt age in comparison mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to me. So I guess it's a similar mm. a similar thing where it's like, it's, it's great that it's got that nostalgia, but it's also very strange and you kind of don't know if it's like you've stepped backwards in time or what's happening. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. And the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? Uh, I know you, this is going to be a very self-referential thing, isn't it? I know you through Rita Sushek, who is one of my really good friends, and I really we're we're cooking up various projects together. Um, but so that you, well, no, that's actually that's how you know me. Yeah, um, I know you because someone recommended the family tree to me ages and ages ago and I can't remember who it was yeah and that's really interesting to me because it I mean I, I think that you know I, I love the family tree and I it, it, we have you know a, a reasonable amount of listeners although I would love to have more listeners um but it's rare that I kind of meet somebody who <laughs> is like oh yeah no I know the family tree um and I'm a listener and, and, and uh, yeah I was trying to work out 
which of the like how you would have come across it who would have recommended it mm. to you I mean I guess there's guests in the cutting section of season one that may have may be on your radar I don't know I think it was on some kind of list because I know I went through a phase of wanting really yeah I used to listen to Selected Shorts which is a short story podcast yeah yeah. And I kind of blew through their back catalogue pretty quickly. And then I was looking for something else, which was fiction, but kind of, you know, some, doing something interesting with the podcast form. So I think maybe it was just like, like, I'm I'm very proud of my Google foo. I yeah. can, I can Google pretty deep into the <laughs> internet. So I think it was something. Yeah, we had a, we had a, a good early review on the AV club. So it might have been there. Mm. We and we were featured on a podcast playlist, which is a Canadian radio show that is also a podcast. Um, so okay. those are the two places I can think of off the top of my head that you might have come across it. But there's, there's probably lists out there that I haven't seen. Mm. Um, you know, it's always it, it, like it's always interesting to find who's talking about you uh, mm. that you don't know about online because because everybody's talking about someone yeah. uh, somewhere online. Um, Luckily, we don't always get like Google alerts to tell us. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of don't even look at my Google alerts mm. for any of my projects anymore because um, they're so frequently nothing to do with my projects that mm. I kind of have stopped uh, paying attention. So if I am mentioned, I probably don't notice now. <laughs> but that's amazing. I mean, and, and that's, yeah, that does get very self-referential because Rita's uh, a performer in The Family Tree mm. in, in season two and in uh, season three that will be coming next year mm. in 2019. Um, and we're, after we record this conversation, going to record uh, a little piece with you uh, for season three of The Family mm. Tree as well. So uh, there you go, lots of adverts for, for my other show, The Family <laughs> Tree. People should definitely check that out. Um, yeah, so that's how we know each other. And Rita, yeah, Rita said, after I recorded the last Getting Better Acquainted that I did with her, because we've done two, um, she said, you should probably meet my friend. Uh, you're doing very, very similar things. Mm. And I like, looked you up and was like, yes, yes <laughs> absolutely. Well, so I didn't know, I didn't know about that side of your work at all, because right. all I knew was the, was the family tree. So I hadn't listened to Getting Better Acquainted at all. Right. And I had no idea about your your show so I was like oh what yeah because I guess that's the thing if you don't know Getting Better Acquainted even though the character of me in the family tree is you know a podcast maker who makes Getting Better Acquainted Mm. you might think that was part of the fiction Mm. uh, if you didn't actually like because it's a very strange fiction um, because I play myself in that show so you'll have heard Mm. me interviewing fictional characters and it's a version of me by now because the the character has experienced different things to to the real me, but I do draw on my own life pretty much as the kind of character background for that for that character. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting way to have uh, been come into somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so the second question I ask everybody is. What do you do now? <laughs> yeah, what don't I do now? <laughs> Might be the better one. So, this listing this always makes me slightly stressed. I say I'm a writer performer, which is kind of you know a catch all and makes people leave you alone at cocktail parties because right. then they're not gonna 
the next question is what do you write and perform and I then have to say I do a lot of work around masculinity and gender and sexual violence and then people stop talking to you (laughs) so that's good (laughs) um (laughs) for one reason or another you know there's many reasons that people don't want to go go down that road yeah exactly um but so what I'm doing specifically now is I just have finished doing a show called Boys Don't which is a children's show about boys and crying and gender and kind of emotional expression uh, and then I'm also doing two shows for grown-ups at the moment one of which is called This Is How It Happens I've been working on that for four years now uh, which is a show about male survivors of sexual violence and then I'm also doing a show uh, called How To Be Good In Bed with an organisation called The Consent Collective which is uh, just what it sounds. It's uh, it's how to be good in bed. That's the that's the thrust of it. No pun intended. <laughs> um, but it's a kind of panel show, game shows sort of have I got news for you, right. but with kind of feminism and and yeah that kind of twist. Um, and we're doing that at uh, we've done it at the University of Edinburgh, and hopefully going to do it at other places like that. Um, and then also there's another side of my work, which is doing sort of training in the charity sector. And that's where the money tends to come from. Right. Uh, I work with the media on how they report on sexual violence as well. So kind of my niche there is reporting on male survivors. But in practice, it's actually more complex than that. Cooking up a PhD as well, slowly, slowly. That's hopefully going to be happening in the next couple of years. Is I'm going to start. Uh, and to round it all off, I have a Saturday job in a children's bookshop where we just do like lovely events and kids parties. Yeah, that's I mean that's a great <laughs> a great mix uh, of stuff and and it's, you know the kind of mix that I'm slightly kind of familiar with because I mean I used to work with the under fives and mm. I occasionally do uh, stuff for children. I've, I've done radio for children and stuff in the past, and it's definitely a, a, an interesting mix to be be working with children and to do stuff for children, but also to be dealing with complicated uh, adult subjects mm-hmm. um, about kind of sexual assault and surviving and all of these kind of things that, that aren't appropriate to mix together. But also, you're slightly aware that you know people can get the wrong idea when they kind of see those two subjects mm-hmm. mixed together mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, I can, can kind of relate to the kind of dance that you must have to do slightly in your life around those things. Although you maybe you don't have to dance at all. I don't well, know. there's a bit of it. I think the so the really interesting thing is I have done very little work in my sexual violence with with that hat on. Uh, I've done very little work around like children's experiences right right that's just not a that's i mean so i i don't have personal experience of that yeah um i know lots of people who have both personal and professional experience of that issue so usually if that comes up in my work i'm just i just refer right <laughs> refer whoever it is on to someone who knows better so that's a really interesting yeah dance in that um there's this one half of my work which is very grown up which is about sexual violence and then there's another part of my work where like I you know you know the statistics you know I know that I'm coming into contact with kids who are going through those issues but I'm not really 
it's it's easy right. i guess it's easier to separate out in my mind right and it's quite it can be quite nice to to do that because yes. i just know okay you know in these scenarios with these kids there's a safeguarding procedure i can look at that safeguarding procedure and know how good or bad it is but ultimately i'm not the one who's accountable right it's just you know making that connection and then stepping back and you're basically. kind of doing work that kind of brings the children joy and yourself mm. joy yeah and that's a great kind of thing to have to offset the other work that you're doing <laughs> which doesn't always bring joy mm. although you know in terms of the panel show format that is is, is going to be entertaining as well yeah. as you know people shouldn't go oh my god it's going to be really heavy and all of that sort no of stuff. and it, yeah it's it's a lot of laughs it has to right. be right um but yeah no it's it's interesting I, although I do I see especially this last show that I did as laying the groundwork because it's about boys specifically being able to talk about what's going on and you know in their emotional lives right so I like to think that that's sort of you know that's that step zero of this work in sexual violence is right. being really really emotionally honest however you come into it I think that's really important so I yeah, the two sort of plug in together, but not quite, not quite explicitly. Right. In my head, they do. I mean, I mean, also they're kind of, you know, they're both, you know, the <clears throat> boys don't is a about masculinity, mm. and it's you know your work around kind of sexual violence is also related to masculinity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess it is all part of the same kind of the same thing, but different kinds of expressions of it, which I think as a creator is really you know good mm. to have those kind of different op- options to to do things in different mediums or to different audiences uh it's it's a good challenge but it also enriches you know all of the different mm. pieces of work you're doing because if you have to explain or talk about masculinity to young children mm. that kind of gives you a, an insight in some ways when you're having to talk to you know adults about masculinity as well i, I should imagine yeah absolutely and i think it's one of the real gifts of the way I'm working is that I get to see people at different stages. Usually I'm working with ages 8 to 18. Certainly within a, in any given month I'll work with people sort of all along that and then also with adults. Right. So kind of... And I think that's something we don't quite have in our heads in the same way as we have like an overall picture of society in this sector. You know, we kind of talk about okay this is uh what the experience of men tends to be but having so we've got like the the spatial dimension right we've got an overview of society but actually the developmental stuff and how these ideas about gender get built up right in almost stages or layers over time is really interesting to me at right. the moment and it's a it's just a slightly different lens which i think we're not quite using to its full potential because it explains a lot well it's arguably the most important kind of time uh where Mm. young people and boys um are very vulnerable but they're also Mm. and they're also getting all of the messages one of the the big thinkers that i think you know has really helped me in terms of thinking about masculinity is bell hooks and Mm. like in her book um the will to change she talks about you know the way that young boys are kind of given patriarchy the way that that they're vulnerable and the way that when we're thinking about kind of maybe cis women and how they 
perpetuate patriarchy as well. It's in sometimes in the way that they mother their their mm. children and the, the messages that they give to their young boys um, before they're kind of fully formed uh, is part of the right. part of the jigsaw puzzle. You know, not to say that it's women's fault or mothers' faults. Far too many people say that, and Bell Hooks absolutely doesn't say mm. that. But it's it's something that we all have to look at. I think. Yeah, I mean, know, how we fit into this puzzle. It's not just on men or boys it's in all of us we all Mm. kind of yeah we're all complicit to different levels for different well actually for relatively similar reasons because this like patriarchy is a really sustainable self-replicating system yeah which feels very safe in lots of ways yes and it's very predictable and like our brains like that sort of thing um but yeah you're absolutely right like it's really interesting to look at you know, when I'm working with eight-year-olds who... Eight-year-old boys live in a very female world most of the time, right? right? Most of them come from households where the dad is out of the house most of the day at work. Still, a lot of their mothers don't work, the, the kids I'm working with. And most of them haven't even been taught by a male teacher in their entire lives. Right. So there's this really interesting thing of all of the stories they're getting, all of the input they're getting is being curated and a, a good amount of it is being created yeah. by women so the question is then what happens between then and a 16 year old and a 26 year old and all that stuff um, and then also if those patriarchal messages are getting through through that content or through those worldviews or whatever how why how do we change that yeah um, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. I think is really, really interesting. Well, I know myself from working with the under fives. Again, you know, obviously there there are fathers and other parental role models and mm. and stuff who are in the, the the kind of settings that I used to work in. But it was primarily with, uh, women and primarily mothers. Um, and you know, they would be just as likely to say, you know, boys will be boys, and mm-hmm. and you know, uh, like you know man up and all those kind mm. of messages like two very young children yeah. no, I've um, seen that as, well. as as fathers are i mean you know i'm not saying you know we absolutely shouldn't say fathers aren't part of the way that children learn about mm. masculinity but you know it's, it's and it's in the books that we read as well mm. i mean you know the biases that are in oh the, my god everything i saw this parenting book called commando dad which is like, and I just, I, I, it's the most odious thing. It's this kind of, you will only have 5,000 days with your infant before they, before it's all too late. So you need to plan it like a military campaign. And it's just, oh God, it's just <laughs> the worst thing. <laughs> but, right. You know, just, just insane. Uh, and a really, like I can, a really high stress performance-based approach to parenting that I just think, you know, God, that's not a... Right. (sighs) No, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely interesting things about, like, yeah, when men do participate in any area that has been traditionally seen as women's, they they often bring toxic masculinity along mm-hmm, for the ride. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. how do I cook the most, you know, masculine way and become <laughs> the top of the cooks? I'm the chef, yeah. and that's you know why. Uh, even though women do the majority of the cooking in the world, like men are the ones who are paid the most when mm-hmm. they do do it. Yeah, 
I mean, and similarly, parenting is a similar kind of area, right? And, and I've seen that myself. And, you know, and it's complicated because, you know, when you do work, I used to do kind of dad's groups. So mm. we used to do like story hunt with dad and we were getting, you know, dads in to be doing the more kind of caring and hands-on and uh, roles. But to get them in, you know, you have to do a little bit of like playing up to some of the things that mm. they already like... What, you yeah, know? we do the same. Had to do the same thing with <laughs> Boys Don't because it's a poetry show, right? And there are certain schools in, in particular where you have to say rap because the the poetry word is just like right, right, right. If you say rap, then it's like yeah. you know the kids all switch on, turn up. Suddenly they're doing all of this stuff, and sometimes we would drop the poetry word in kind of halfway through once they were already engaged and enthused and have that discussion. Right, but yeah, you sort of had to. I think a lot of this work on masculinity, you still have to Trojan horse yes. your your disruptiveness, yeah. um, which is right. I don't love doing, but it's a it's a fun moment when when you get to actually go do the flip. Yeah, yeah. there was a there was a, some body language happening there, listeners, that you couldn't see, but it was a very uh, effective way of communicating. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, I talk with my hands. Yeah, no lot. doubt, that's... which is good. I mean. I mean, and that's another thing. I think quite a lot of men, like, don't talk with their hands, mm. right? British like, men. Well, Brit- yeah, yeah, British, yeah, British men. British men. But, but definitely it's seen as camp, right? Mm-hmm. So I've all my life uh, have been seen in that through that lens, particularly at school. And I'm, like, trying to become comfortable with my mm. sort of swigging hands. <laughs> um, you know, which is ridiculous, I have to say. You know, what a ridiculous <laughs> thing to be like, having to work on. It's so silly. Like, I'm, I, I keep finding levels. And, I, like, I'm... I'm Quite possibly the least macho person I've met. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, I've, yeah, I've, yeah. I knew very many drag queens when I was at university, so I'm not. But um, I can, and I'm still finding levels where I'm like, or you know, I'm criticizing myself for being too feminine for like the tiniest, most stupid things. Right. You know, like uh, like what was it recently? It's my it's my voice. I was having a whole thing with my voice because I heard it recorded on something and I was like oh god you should really try and talk kind of with your more of your chest voice and I'm just like who gives your, a who gives a monkey <laughs> like, there's no reason <laughs> to do that I mean that, but that's true I mean and all, but like and it and it goes all all directions there are lots of you know women who are worried that their voices are too low and mm-hmm. then like when they hear their voices back they wish that they were higher like we're all like aspiring to these very very binary yeah. Yeah. ridiculous weird concepts. platonic gender ideals that yeah. actually describe no one and are probably pretty damaging. I mean, that's a bit... I mean, you see babies. I used to work... You know, when I used to work with babies, you know, you'd see babies, you know, in in blue, you know, T-shirts with, like, kind of macho expression. <laughs> or, like, you'd see, like, pink with, like, dad's favourite or whatever mm. written on it, like, if they were a girl or whatever. And it'd still be terrible, weird messages and, like, sexualizing children often, like, in certain yeah. kinds of ways that no one would ever approve of um, if it wasn't heterosexual sexualizing. Right, they, that's they also would be true. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> you can't suggest that, you know, my two-year-old is gay, but, you know, you should suggest that my two-year-old's going to be, like, breaking as many hearts in mm-hmm. nursery. It's like, no, they're not going to break any hearts in nursery. They're just going to play. They're going to break crayons. And <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's, yeah, it's an interesting kind of 
yeah, I think it's it is interesting working with children of any age, but particularly I can imagine like eight to eighteen is a really those are such pivotal years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mean, which mm-hmm. isn't to say that the under fives aren't differently pivotal, but when puberty is kind of on the horizon, that really makes for a lot of complexities. Even if we didn't have all of this kind of binary gender essentialism right. and patriarchy all around us, uh, teenage years would still be tough. Yeah, I mean, just on the physical level, yeah. like your body is doing right. some really, really weird stuff that you have to figure out how right. to manage. But, but yeah, there's there's this really interesting change that I see between, what was it? Definitely, I guess, between 8 and 14. Um, one of the questions that often gets asked after we do that show, after we did that show, I should say now, is... There's there's almost inevitably a girl who will put her hand up and say, why do boys buy into this macho rubbish? Like, we don't want them to be like this. And the eight-year-old boys are all genuinely shocked. Right. They're all, like, actually, like, what are you talking about? Girls don't want us to be like this. Like, what? You know, <laughs> and you can see the disbelief. And by about 13, 14, it's not, um, it's not shock anymore. It's, it's doubt. It's, it, and it's mistrust when the girls say that because it isn't true yeah like it can be true and of course you know it should be true (laughs) maybe but it's definitely true as a person who's been a teenage boy Mm. that like wanted to to be allowed to to kind of step outside Mm. the box and couldn't fit inside the box that lots of girls did say they wanted bad boys or whatever or mm. masculine boys and all of these things which maybe in time they realised they didn't want mm. and maybe you know like boys are lying to themselves you know girls are lying to, we're all lying to ourselves I don't know if that's so much a thing now though because I hope not I really hope not I mean you know, yeah I mean obviously I'm sure it depends on it's been over 20 we're talking in broad strokes it's been over 20 <laughs> years since I was in private in secondary school so what I I hope it's changed what I seem to be seeing is that the girls are really it and it's not so much the the actual machismo and the those kinds of behaviors but it is stuff like the not showing emotion, right. um, the the kind of stoicism part, part that thread that runs through it. I think a lot of the girls are actually quite frustrated by that, and right. they're like, "Actually, I just want you to have a feeling." But you know, right. I I probably want the feeling to be some you know X Y Z because when you're a teenager, you yeah, know, that's that's how it goes for everyone. Right, um, <laughs> everyone wants to be fancied. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. But yeah, there's a real frustration there with this with this stuff, and they're like, "Where does it even come from?" Right. At least with some of them, the question comes up often enough that I definitely think there are lots of young young girls and maybe young women who are like, "I don't get where this come from comes from." I don't. But if you don't, if you if you are have managed to not get those messages, then mm. you don't. Like there are lots of things where I'm like, I remember, you know kind of being baffled by homophobia because mm. I wasn't homophobic like you know and I was being treated like gay was wrong being gay was wrong and I wasn't gay but I didn't didn't understand mm. that everything about that you know when I was eight nine mm. ten you know obviously by by you know 15 I I got some more messages and understood stuff better but so I think there's that but I mean also even if all of the girls who are their contemporary age 
no longer have those expectations around masculinity, and I really hope that's mm. the case. Their parents and yeah. the, and the media that they consume absolutely tell them that that's not true. So mm-hmm. even if they they should take that completely as uh, on face value as being absolutely genuine mm. from their peers, they're still going to be distrustful. Yeah, because and that. by fourteen, it's it's almost I would say too late not too late yeah. to disrupt those messages i don't think it's ever too no, late no it's never too late but it's you know it's an uphill battle you're unpicking how these yeah. kids have been taught sex and affection and relationships work on a fundamental level by that point and it's just yeah it's really really yeah hard and there's all sorts of i mean there's all sorts of stuff where i you know I've, i'm really excited about the prospect of more gender diverse conversations about all of these subjects because we are not talking to each other enough right um right like that's a that's a thing that really needs to happen um i did a i did a kind of experiment just for me on reddit where i asked in two different forms i asked men and women about compliments and the levels of sophistication were so different you know the women were coming up with this really really nuanced thing of okay well the compliment needs to be about this and the motivation is you know needs to be about making the person feel good rather than getting something from them and the men were saying like I'm riding high from this compliment three years ago which actually was pretty objectifying (laughs) and it was someone drunk in a you know outside a club but that was the last compliment I got and I'm like oh okay of course those two people don't understand each other because there's a such radically different experiences of the world right um and i'm yeah i'm not trying to kind of draw like necessarily an equivalence there no but that conversation is not really happening in in a really deep and and open way do you know what i mean yeah absolutely i mean i i think that's right i think we need to talk in every direction possible mm. around all of these issues, like across groups, um, but also within groups. I mean, like one of the mm-hmm. big problems that men have is we don't talk very openly and honestly to each other. We talk, mm. there's the, you know, it, it, it can be oversaid that men don't talk. You know, structurally, we talk too much in terms of work settings mm. and we kind of like dominate board meetings, but we don't talk about our feelings, yeah. right? There's a, we have had the cultural microphone for a really long time and that it's a big amplification but there's also a script that goes with it well I mean I I talk all the time but when I went into therapy I had no idea how to talk about my Mm. actual feeling how to just like I I've literally when I went into therapy at that point I'd already done theatre shows talking Mm. about my feelings and I can talk about my feelings in a performative context sure but then actually to like work out how do I feel at this moment not what are my big points about feelings but how do I what is my actual feeling now and I I can't I'm still right you can't access it sometimes it's just yeah that's something I've really struggled with in the sexual violence space is people do a lot of checking in uh, and a lot of it is how are you feeling now are you okay now and I'm like you know building the actual ability to know what I'm feeling in a moment is something that I just haven't you know I didn't do for the first 20 odd years of my life right. like it's uh, it's not those aren't muscles that were well right well practiced I mean and, and I don't think that's just a masculinity thing no as well I think all. that's like this is the thing I think there are real different prisons of within gender mm-hmm. and they're not just they're not as simple anyway as like two 
you know that that I like when you know when I speak to to black women, they have very similar, I think, yes, socialization is like to... men, working class men, yes, like, yes, 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 very sort of like it's all on my shoulders. I've got to support the family. I've got to always be mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like I've always got to control my emotions because I am responsible for looking after everyone mm-hmm. and that's very similar with a stoic yeah. man as a there's kind a of pride thing there's a, a don't be too angry thing yeah, like right. there are so many really interesting commonalities right. there yeah for sure for sure and and you know and, and again like talking about any group is a generalization which yes, isn't going to be correct for everyone in that group and you know I'm a white man so suddenly talking about like you know talking about black women is not really my that's not my lane and I'm mm. aware of that but again I do think we need to talk across our lanes mm. as well as stay in them it's a kind of weird uh, kind of balance that we need to get but I do think that we need to get it yeah <laughs> and I think being um like I think we need to be more open to mistakes and kind of screwing it up because there's absolutely no way we do any of this work perfectly and without, you know, everyone, well, not everyone is traumatised, but there is a lot of trauma in the room around gender as an issue and then, you know, consent and that kind of stuff and, and especially... At some points, it's going to be really difficult. At some points, someone's going to overstep. Someone's going to say something. Someone's just going to articulate something badly. Right. Um, and I think we need to be a little bit better uh, at teasing that stuff out and being, I guess, more more forgiving. Um, but forgiving in a like a real way of going, okay, yeah. you know, there was a thing, it didn't really work for these reasons. We're going to work through it. Do you know what I mean? Well, forgiveness, I, I think, is, is is useful generally in terms of how it helps the person who is forgiving mm. in, in many ways. Like, if you... if Like, being able to forgive various people in my life has been good for me. Mm. Um, and also maybe good for them in the long run. Like, maybe that can be a, a, a process, but... I don't think we should kind of expect forgiveness of people. I think, no. like, like when we when we say you have to forgive someone, mm. like the the young boy who, who uh, was accused of groping a woman in a department store in in America, and he was like nine, and he mm. it, what like CCTV showed it was his his backpack, and like that she was being super racist in her assessment of him. He said. I'm not going to forgive her. Mm. And I think, fine, mm. it, that's that's his right. Yeah. And also, there's a point to that as well, because to forgive someone, there's another element often that is required, which is that they need to atone or be accountable. And, yes. and, and the, the, the woman in question, I don't think, has shown any form of attrition mm. or understanding of, of her action in that, in that moment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's those are really good points. I guess and I think maybe forgiveness isn't quite the right word, but I don't know, we we just generally as a society right now are very polarized and very suspicious of each other's motivations. Right. Um understandably <laughs> for yeah. very good reasons. But um I think definitely within this these conversations at least um we, I guess we need to be accepting that missteps and mistakes right. and kind of, you know, that is part of the process. And it's not, it's not an absolute failing of the conversation 
if something uncomfortable happens. It's a failing of the conversation if we can't then deal with that in a way which is kind of appropriate and compassionate to the to the people involved. No, I agree with you for, for sure on that. I mean, maybe it's 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 like empathy or mm. something like that rather than forgiveness initially. Mm. But but it's but I agree. I mean, when you when you say there's a lot of trauma in the room, I think that's something that does get overlooked very often in all of these discussions. Mm. It's really easy to look at patriarchy and say, well, because men are more oppressive as a rule mm. the, the the there isn't trauma for within that oppression within mm-hmm. those men's experience and it's it it i'm not su- suggesting that it's the job of women then to to be responsible for dealing and healing the the trauma of men but but it needs to be recognized that there is a trauma on like the men are often responding to trauma it's not as easy as like men are terrible monsters and like they're they're they're, they're meant to be i mean because you know that's the kind of message that my my mum brought me up believing in some mm. ways which has not been helpful mm. although you know i don't know who knows maybe i would not have got to where i've got with gender if i hadn't have kind of had that kind of mm. but I'm, but like we're being bullied i, I don't i'm not grateful that it happened or mm. or, or proving of it but I, but I do think that, that we can easily forget that there's trauma. In, like, as you say, everybody's often bringing trauma. Mm. And that doesn't justify any behaviours or like st- structural oppression for, for generations. But, it, but it, is, it does need to be acknowledged that there's trauma yeah. on, all, on all sides quite often. I mean, just on a on a practical level, it needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. Exactly, right. Do you That's know what thing. I mean? Like, it's, That's it's, it. That's it. Um, if you're having this situation where you're approaching someone who or you're approaching a, a class of people who are structurally privileged like that's great and that's 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 a a necessary lens for us to use but you know a class of people never walked down a street and cackled right. someone right an individual did and that individual has a story and if you want that behavior to change at some point some of the engagement has to be with who that individual actually is and why why you're doing that but yeah as you point out the labor question is tricky right who does that work because it's really not appropriate for it to be the woman who's getting catcalled yes absolutely that's definitely not okay yeah um and then especially within the sexual violence space as well the expertise is usually women like that's who the space has been built by right um, built by and for for really valid reasons yeah. in terms, you know, to do with the demographics of who who experiences abuse disproportionately. Um, but that's a really weird space. Like I find that really difficult because you know all of my mentors in that space are female. Um, a lot of the people who are supporting me in the work I'm doing are women. So you know, it's kind of like, well, you know no one else can do that work and i wouldn't particularly want to do it in a different context anyway you it's, know it's an interesting thing though as well it's a, it's a barrier as well in the in in that the, in the way that we were talking about before when you do work with young people and, or mm. dads you often have to kind of play in a little bit to the masculinity thing and so like there are lots of men who maybe have experienced uh sexual assault who or, or violence of, of, of any kind who when confronted with a, a, a female therapist or uh, a female counsellor or whatever a female expert is going to not not access that mm-hmm. service because of they the, the, it because they're not being met where they are and mm. kind of brought in 
I've, I've, you know, I've, I've, a, a therapist I really admire who I interviewed on the show was saying about how, you know, a lot of men, that is a barrier, that there is so many mm. women in therapy. And, like, she is a black woman who does therapy for, for black people. And, uh, you know, so specifically, you know, black men, when confronted with white women, mm. it's not the dynamic. Like, everyone thinks that, 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 like, people who are aware of patriarchy are like, yeah, well, you know, that's a man, they're the oppressive class. But obviously, when it's a yeah. black man and a In white that woman, moment, yeah. the, his, the history of that dynamic is not as as, as uh, simple as, as people who just see, see things as being about gender mm-hmm. can, you know, can, can acknowledge. Mm. You know, that's a super complicated dynamic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's also uh, uh, not as simple on the other side, just because this is present in my mind because of a conversation I had recently. There's a whole other side, which is it's not as simple as... Um, the way people who only have an awareness of racial inequality right. would see, because right. because there's a very you know there's a there's a gendered dynamic there as well as a racial dynamic, and you need to be able to either hold those things, or if that's you know ultimately the, there's also another power dynamic there, which is therapist and patient, right. which is a massive power dynamic. Right, right, right. You know, it's huge, and there's class and all sorts of things that <laughs> get kind of ignored in these things. But I think you're absolutely right that. Well, there's a, there was that phrase that I that was misinterpreted by people within social justice uh, discourses mm. um, of intent isn't magic, right? Mm. And that's true. Intent isn't magic. Like it doesn't matter. And and I I, I am a big believer in this in the in the in the kind of statement that like intent isn't as important as effect like mm-hmm. the effect of your actions is more important than what you intended them to be mm. however like you say we can't solve the problem unless we also look at the intent because mm. that's how you find a way of changing the action yeah. like it, it isn't to say it matters why people do what they do isn't just to approve the actions yeah. that they do it's to say if we want to change we need to find mm. out why you know, and all of these things, you know, that are around mm. us, um, all of these different systems and lenses, like you mm. say, there are different ways of looking at things. And I yeah. think it's good to, to mix it up. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really difficult at the moment is that everyone is operating from a, I don't know what you call it, a kind of uh, a scarcity mindset, you know, because, you know, because we're living through not just economic austerity, but you know, everyone's really, really scrambling for their voice to be heard, their piece of the conversation to be fit in, right. myself included. Right. Um, but I think actually maybe it's important to to try and be a little bit more um, generous in how we in how we approach these conversations and to say, you know, okay, so the piece that you're bringing and my piece don't have to be in competition right. with each other. right. Because that's the thing I, I... There's this really weird thing that I've noticed, which is that I, I will have these incredibly nuanced conversations with women in the space who are working kind of fairly exclusively on, you know, from a women's rights and violence against women and girls framework. And the conversation I have with them in private is really nuanced. And then that person goes on Radio 4 and is delivering a very kind of on-message... Um, kind of uh, uh, yeah they're they're very on message they're very we need to talk exclusively about um, 
Violence Against Women and Girls, I'm probably not going to mention trans women at all, probably going to be coming from a very traditional criminal justice point of view. And I'm thinking, you know, why why is the conversation we're having in private, I think, better and more nuanced than the public discourse? It You know, it's almost like we don't trust people to be able to, to carry that nuance. We're scared that yeah. this or that message is going to get taken out of context. So and we see so that happen. That's, Absolutely. It's, it's a reasonable defence oh, mechanism. Oh, no, it definitely But is. as any of us who've built up reasonable defence mechanisms kind of know, the, 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 they're helpful for a bit, mm-hmm. and then they're the problem. Yeah. Like, the, the, I'm still trying to unlearn the defence mechanisms <laughs> I learn, and I'm sure, you know, most, most, oh my God, most aren't people we all? are. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, we have to do that as a kind of collectively as well. Mm. Like, what are the social defence mechanisms we've built up mm. uh, that stop us from really talking? And that, I think, in, you know, in my kind of career, such as it is, career sounds a lot like I've got a plan, and then there's no, <laughs> there is no plan. Um, but for me, that's all about the physical space that the the conversation happens in. Right. Um, and that's why kind of making art is such a great container for that conversation, because you can have the nuance. Right. You know, you can have the um, the, the kind of... Yeah, you can have space for multiple stories right. to sit alongside each other. And I don't know, there's something about art in general and theatre in particular, which really is a great container for that more generous conversation. Right. Not everything can be said in a tweet. You know, that's right, the thing, exactly. Isn't it? Like, yeah, longer form, you know, more and more I'm kind of gravitating, not just not just because that's what I've been working in anyway, but, mm. like, the, the the longer that kind of this sense of of a lack of, as you say, like, a lack of forgiveness or a sudden judgment or a sense mm. that if you say something, you're going to get pinned to those words for the mm-hmm. whole of your life and you're never going to be able to escape what people think about you online. Mm. I mean, that all reminds me a lot of, you know, school of secondary mm. school and being bullied anyway so I try really hard to avoid uh, being kind of uh, finding myself in a pile on because I know that that's just going to bring up loads of um, real life for mm. want of a better phrase because the internet's real life too yeah um, but I try to avoid that kind of thing but then but longer form that's where it's at for me like mm. when I like my my show you know, is an is an hour, which means that I can I can kind of attack everybody, but also say everybody's okay. You know, <laughs> mm. at the same time, like you couldn't do that in a tweet. You couldn't do that no. in a, a clickbait short form article either. You know, there's there's reasons to move away from some of the kind of dominant art forms that we're now surrounded by, which are great. You know, I love I love a good tweet. Don't get yeah, me wrong. it's a yeah, absolutely, <laughs> uh, but it's not. Yeah, we're not going to solve the world in it. Right. Uh, not going to solve the world in, in either of our shows no, either, but you know. Really <laughs> but um, no, there's a, there's a story <laughs> in This Is How It Happens where I really, really wrestled with how to present it for a long time. But it's the story of uh, a young black kid in the 30s in, uh, in the American South. And what basically happens is he is falsely accused of sexual assault by a woman who has been, actually by two women who have been raped, but they end up 
being coerced by their attackers into accusing the wrong person to deflect attention. Right. And of course, being a black man in the 30s who is accused and then convicted of assaulting two white women, he then ends up becoming a victim of sexual violence as well in prison. Uh, And it's a real story um, that happened in, uh, well, it was on a train, so it's not clear where the assault happened, which was a whole other thing. But anyway, he was was sentenced in Alabama. There's a section in the show which is about his relationship to this woman on the outside who's accused him of this thing that he knows she's going through. Right. And he's going through the exact same thing as a survivor that she is in terms of the trauma He's in jail, she's out there living what's ostensibly a comfortable life, but it isn't actually really because everyone knows she's been sexually assaulted, and so there's a huge amount of shaming that's going on there. Um, There's stuff that she's going to have to worry about that he's not, you know, things like pregnancy and all of that sort of stuff. So it's it's about this kind of wrestling with, can he forgive her, can he understand her? Does the fact that he understands what she's going through mean that it was okay for her to make that call? Does it not? And it's it's this really, really difficult, morally ambiguous tale that I wrestled with through the entire thing. And it, it was especially, you know, I wrote this show initially during the... I think I finished it. Yeah, during the first 10 months after I was raped. So I was like, all of this stuff was, you know flying off the walls in my head and I you know it was just kind of coming out actually no actually I tell a lie that those passages were about 18 months after I was working on those um but there was this real kind of sense of like anger coming out in these in these stories from the character towards not his attacker but towards this person who had falsely accused him because the rape had triggered that kind of stuff um and there were interviews with him and and it's a horrible but fascinating set of set of affairs where kind of this patriarchy and systemic racism just conspired in the most awful way and i doubt that that's unusual as well i mean this is the thing that there are we are in this really complex series of kind of jigsaw puzzles Mm. and like you know when you throw in like yeah trans experiences and like disability and Mm -hmm. all of these other and age as well factors yeah so often a even if it's not like directly the same like when you look at like intergenerational trauma Mm. like often people are passing down like non-consensual things even when there's not like like rape or sexual assault involved there's still messages about Mm -hmm. bodily autonomy and safety that we're like passing down and then reacting against Mm. and people who've perpetrated things are also people who've experienced Mm. uh yeah like assault or violence and so it's 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 super complicated yeah it's messy um right and I think we need to make space for the messiness a little bit more. Um, yeah, I, I get some really, really interesting questions. And actually, specifically sometimes from men who want this kind of, okay, so I just need you to tell me that this thing I did was okay and this thing was not <laughs> right, okay. Right, right. 
And I'm like, okay, firstly, the fact that you're coming and asking me means that you're not okay with this and you think something was not right. So that question answered. But also it's this kind of, it's this really weird transactional way of thinking that a lot of men I think have about our relationships. And I think there are similar parallels with, with women as well. Like if you read Cosmo or whatever, there's definitely some stuff in there which yeah. is aping this the same kind of formulaic approach to consent and relationships and all of that. But I think for men, there's a very specific kind of approach that we take. Like, if you know, if you look at fairy tales, slay the dragon, get the princess. Right. You know, do violence, right. get love. Right, right. Um, fight your way through the thicket of thorns right. and get cut, cut and be stoic and right. you get the princess. Be, be Bruce Willis in any of his films right. and there's a princess waiting for you at the end. So it's this very, if I do the right thing, love and sex and my needs being met will just fall into my right. life and they should. And it's just kind of... Right, there's an entitlement there. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing as well. It's like, yeah, I've definitely seen that. Probably, I've, I feel like I've seen that on both sides not that there are sides but mm. both of the accepted gender norms that have been given by society like I've definitely like when I think of my experience being sexually assaulted by a cis woman there was an entitlement in that it was like you, you promised this mm-hmm, thing and mm-hmm. you can't withdraw your consent at this point because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is why this is you know this is the way it's supposed to be and blah 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 yeah and, it, and yeah, there's a there's some sort of weird like contract thing that you have somehow signed right. up to, and if you're not fulfilling, but I've definitely part of the deal. and I've definitely but I've definitely been that person on the other side mm. of like, you know, as a kind of geeky, like not 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 fitting in, non normative teenager. I definitely felt like the geeky girl owed me mm-hmm. the relationship, owed me all of those things mm. because we were in the same group and yeah. like, you know, and that's absurd. Like, mm. I know that's absurd now. I'm 37 years old now, done <laughs> lots of work, had therapy, all that <laughs> stuff. But, but, it, but there is a sense of entitlement that, mm. that I think can happen. And I'm sure it's the same with, 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 you know, gay people as well. Mm-hmm. That there's entitlement all around. All this oh, there stuff. is totally a script. Yeah. There's a, there's a really like clear, clear script of how encounters and relationships are supposed to go. And, and we like those because the alternative is I might have feelings for someone. They might not have feelings right. back. Even Rejection. if the feelings are there, yeah. it might not work. Yeah, it's scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's much easier for us to say, okay, well, if I do X, Y, Z, love will come to me and right. I can. all I have to do is work hard enough. Yeah, love and sex are like algebra. You mm-hmm. just have to, like, follow the formula and then, yeah. But, which is not I'm not saying that's the way it is I'm mm. saying that's the bad attitude people have but I think for men particularly the, the really dangerous thing is that if you work hard enough right because if you then have a situation where someone's put in the work they've slayed their dragon whatever that is in real life you know I've got the fancy job with the car or bought you a drink or whatever it is yeah and then the princess doesn't play ball suddenly someone's invested a whole bunch of time and effort into this idea of how to get love and connection. And if the woman there is saying, or actually, it's not always a woman, is it? It's, you know, it can be a, another man or a trans person as well. But if the person there is saying, I, I don't really care that you have a Lamborghini or that you 
bought me dinner. Like, that's not how this goes. I don't owe you anything. Suddenly that's threatening the entire way this person has been told love and sex work. And I think particularly for men when we, you know, past the age of 13, like how much physical contact and touch and intimacy do you have in your life outside of romance and sex? Like the stakes are really high. Yeah, I mean, there's... There's a lot of things I've, I've like, read about of, like, yeah, being starved of touch. Mm-hmm. Like, like the touch is a thing that human beings want, and we don't even touch ourselves, man, mm. quite often. Uh, like, even though everyone's, like, you know, the ev- everyone kind of thinks of men as, like, you know, masturbation or whatever. <laughs> sure, quite, quite a few men, not all men, uh, masturbate, but quite a few men do, but that's not the only form of touch. Yeah. Like, we don't hug ourselves, mm. even uh so yeah 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 it's a dangerous like it's a dangerous time and i think i don't know the more you look at things like rape culture and and the the massive discrepancy between the amount that men offend in terms of sexual violence and women like the more it actually starts to make sense but also the fixes are not easy the fixes for that are really unpicking a lot of this stuff about how we treat each other and how we are treated and childhood stuff and yeah I like I sometimes get overwhelmed I'm sometimes like you know what actually (laughs) this is just too hard right now yeah and I can't I can't do it today um but that's understandable, particularly yeah. as, as it's an experience that you've been through as well. Like, mm. this is the thing. It's the people doing the work are so often survivors. Right. In whatever way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when they are people who have been perpetrators, who have over time learned and, and, and are now doing amazing, like, work, kind of, like, atone or whatever, they're still a kind of form of survivor at that mm-hmm. point. Like, the in general society, like, isn't doing the work. It's, like, individuals who have had some exposure yeah. to the to the kind of hard edge of rape culture mm. who were doing the work and and not even all women, of, not the, even all, like you say all of those people like we've got a parliament sitting there with 600 MPs in it like many of whom spent a lot of time in institutions like boarding schools right. where and Absolutely. I know survivors it's... from those institutions and that's again like yeah. we think of like upper class people as like oh yeah uh, they're the enemy mm-hmm. um, but you know upper class boys are like boys still mm-hmm. and they are in, in very big danger in a lot of those institutions yeah. and I think I really suspect that the people making some of these regressive laws and decisions they're they're sitting in rooms with their colleagues who have similar trauma and the reason that they are so aggressive towards some of the services and some of the narratives of survivors in the rest of society is in some small way because they know that there's no compassion out there for their experience. Yeah, they never got the help. Yeah, and so why, so should, why anyone should anyone else? else? Yeah, and that's definitely right. Mm. I think. And that's something I, I've had within myself at certain yeah. points. Like, absolutely. I've definitely had that too. <laughs> and not just, like, not just in the area of sexual assault as well. It's, like, in all areas, like, w- where you've had trauma or you've had emotional abuse or you've not had, mm-hmm. you've not had resources that you needed. Mm. Like... Yeah, like it, there is an instinct that I knock down every time I feel it. Of like, yeah, you know, 
I was bullied at school, so you know, yeah. people just have to deal with it, you know. Or like, yeah. I was had hard home life, so why should we try and make nice mm. home lives for people? It's like, yeah, I, mean, I was fine. <laughs> yeah. You should be too. Yeah, and it's such a it it just doesn't come from a a genuine place of thought. It comes from a place of pain. But they weren't fine as well. Mm. Like, that's part of the problem. If if you've spent your whole life trying to convince yourself that you were fine, mm. then to say that you weren't is to unravel your entire life yes. like, back from that point. I mm. mean, I, and so I think that's that's another thing that needs to be taken into account when it's people who have, have lived with trauma for a long time, it's much harder to unpick it. Like, mm. we're the lucky ones because we're unpicking yeah. it young. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even that young anymore, <laughs> but I started a while back. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And I'm I'm constantly aware of how lucky I am. And it really is, I've just, you know, like, not just within, with the issue around sexual violence, although, you know, I, like, the average man waits 21 years to disclose. I waited 10 minutes. Wow. wow. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was... Because yeah. I knew there was someone on the other end of the phone who who I could disclose to. Right. And it would be fine. I mean, it took me a year and taking ecstasy to <laughs> disclose, uh, or even to understand mm. myself. Like, I literally was in a situation where I was like, because I was in an altered state, I was like thinking it through. Mm. And like, in a, in a, in fact, you know, uh, ecstasy has been used uh, with survivors actually as a, as a way of talking about oh, really? these things from, uh, yeah, from, um, uh, um, I can't remember her first name, but her surname is Shulgin, who is, uh, like the partner of Alexander Shulgin, who was one of the people who resynthesized uh, ecstasy back in the day. Um, she was a therapist and she did lots of uh, work with survivors mm. because you can talk from a kind of like you're in a state of love. And so you can mm. talk in a way that is kind of like not right there. And in... yeah, you're not going to fall into the trauma black hole. Exactly. Yeah. Is what I call it. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I was. Yeah, and I was like, oh, this experience I had was, yeah, not cons- it was non-consensual sex. That is rape. Oh, mm. right, okay. Um, and then I was also like, you know, maybe that's why I've been writing about rape ever since mm. that point. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, uh, yeah. But 10, minute, <laughs> 10 minutes is quick, but again, but 10 minutes and you're disclosing to someone who is a stranger, right? No, it was, to, it was to a friend, oh, so wow, I, that's I called great. someone. But what's really interesting is I had this real sense, and I remember this very vividly, I had this real sense of, if I don't say this now, I know I will bury it forever. Right. Do you know what I mean? It felt like there was a closing window of opportunity where I almost knew I was shocked enough that I could say it, and that 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 was going to go. Um, Right. And actually, the words, I was raped, have never come out of my mouth as easily as they did in that first ten minutes. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. even there, I paused. Like, yeah, I, yeah I, I always have to take a <laughs> breath before I say mm. that kind of sentence. And I always feel like somebody's going to, like, come out of the woodwork and tell me I, I wasn't. Or, like, yeah. you know, d- d- I'm suddenly going to be denied if I do say it out mm-hmm. loud. I mean, and, that, and that's, yeah, that's mixed in with a lot of stuff mm. around masculinity, I guess, for both of us. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the other thing. I, I do think, whilst I, I absolutely accept that 
women are are more likely to be sexually assaulted than men within a kind of patriarchal system that we have. I do also wonder how many men we have yet to hear from mm. and how many men fall into the kind of category that we were talking about of like i i survived so uh, yeah. other people should just grin and bear it yes like how many of uh, like you know i i do think and there's been some sort of some articles and some studies and stuff around this that suggest that there's like larger amounts i mean i, I think the sad thing is that there's a larger amount of everybody mm. so like nobody reports and so when we if we ever got to the bottom of it it's still going to be majority women it's just going to be a lot more men than we thought mm-hmm. and a lot more women yeah and a lot more non-binary people mm. and you know in in every direction um yeah there's just a there's just a shit ton of pain out there basically but i, I mean it comes down to like we don't even like i mean meg john and justin who are sex educators who i really like talk about like we live in a non-consensual society mm-hmm. and i think that's really it like yeah we're not we're not consensual in so many areas like mm-hmm. work is in itself the concept of work and when when yeah. you were talking earlier on of of like men feeling like i've done x and y so i'm just i deserve uh sex there's also that is very bound up with i've worked hard mm-hmm. and like if you yeah. work hard you'll retire at the end of it and you'll yeah. you get your house at the end mm. of it and then when that is turns out to be not true you see a lot of rage and violence from men mm-hmm. um well school is, is like by definition school is not is completely non-consensual right. and that's Absolutely. the majority of your of your life <laughs> right. for, that you can remember do you know what I mean? and yeah. and as someone who takes the arts into schools i'm always really really aware of that like there are lots of ways in which the kids i'm sometimes performing to don't have a choice in whether they're hearing what I have to say or not. Right. And that's a, that's an uncomfortable thing for me to sit with, you know, that, that has to colour the discussion we're having in the room. Right. Um, I mean, universities, it's easier because, you know, it's not... I, I really don't want to ever do compulsory consent education. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It just seems like a real contradiction yeah. in yeah. in terms. I mean, that's not to say that it's not... Um, but it's not something that should ever happen in any context. But I think that it's just, yeah, you you at least need to acknowledge that the contradiction. In it. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. know, there's an implicit contradiction there. Um, absolutely, mm. which mean, might be a great teaching tool, actually. But you know, but I mean, well, you need to obtain a form of consent, really. Like, I mean, I I do when I do my show, I. I do a content note and say people mm. can leave. But then I'm also really aware that when I do that, somebody leaving from an audience that's already existing is disclosing, mm. uh, potentially. And so they may not feel they can leave, even though I'm giving them all the permission in the world to leave. Yeah. So, it, like, consent's so complex. Mm. And at the same time... I don't want to not do that show because mm. I know that that show has resonated and been effective for enough people that I want to keep doing it. But then, mm. um, you know, a, a, a content note is, is, is never kind of actually a content note fully mm. because, you know, I've done that show as well for people who just assumed that the content note was... St- I, I can deal with shows about this topic and actually were triggered by my mm. description of being sexually assaulted. 
Um, and they had assumed not, I think, because they're not a man, and so they didn't think that my experience would trigger theirs. Ah, okay, that's interesting. And in fact, my my experience has a lot of similarities, I think, with a lot of mm. women's... I uh, get that, sorts. I get told that a lot, okay? A lot of women who have seen my show have come up to me afterwards and said, I was really shocked by how close it was to my own experience. Um, and I'm like... I mean, you know, part of me is going, well, that's just because I'm a really good writer and I tap into the universal human yes, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. But it, it's not. I'm, there's another more realistic part yeah. of it, which is like, I wonder why you were surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't say that in a kind of, in a pointed way, but I guess we don't quite... We do this thing with male survivors that I noticed when I was doing my master's where we almost have this collective amnesia about the fact that male survivors exist in society. Like, we can deal with it in the abstract. You know, if it's a pie chart of the proportion of societies and a portion of them are male, yeah. um, we can deal with that. That's fine. Everyone is really, really willing to acknowledge that that's a thing. But if you actually ask people to think about, um, you know, applying that to their life, you know, who, which are the proportion of men in your life right. who are likely to be survivors? That's where people start getting really, really like, oh, I don't want right. to think about that. But, but, but isn't that, that's kind of universally as well. I mean, mm. I, like I, I say in my show, you know, I haven't got enough fingers on my hands to count the amount of people I know who are mm. survivors. And people, and it's even more right now because of me too. Yeah. Um, and... I think that's the case. Like very few people are walking around thinking, "Oh, well, statistically, that means that like this proportion of the people I know <laughs> are, are survivors." And you know, if you are someone who talks about this stuff, you 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 can't not. Yeah, you, you, people disclose to you. Mm-hmm. you too many people. You know, you know, like you know, friends, family members, strangers, all sorts of people yeah. tell you their stuff, and sometimes you. Uh, prepared to deal with it and, and sometimes, sometimes you're, you're really not prepared and you know and I'm sure that I've been on the other side of that dynamic as mm-hmm. well as, a, as somebody who's yes. somebody sometimes talked to other people and I'm sure it's not been the right moment for them mm. to hear so I I never want someone to feel like bad mm. for talking to me about something but no it has to <laughs> yeah sometimes it is it is a moment where you are unprepared um I had a an encounter with with Rita in this room actually uh, after a party here where someone had disclosed and we were she was fine I had had about a bottle and a half of champagne and <laughs> right you know I was I was really drunk and so was the other person in there were four of us in the room and one of the other people in the room did didn't take the disclosure well and was quite I think quite. Uh, triggered and also quite upset and really really it just didn't it did not go go well and sort of we between us had to had to end up managing those you know that dynamic dynamics and thank goodness but that was that was a lot easier because we were we were sort of fell in together as a team and we're working together right no it's 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 so complex those kind of experiences and I, I find that the ones that made me the ones that I feel the most complex about are when people disclose a secret to me, mm. like because I understand why and I, I keep people's secrets as much as I 
don't find that a comfortable thing to do. But like when it's a big secret that somebody discloses and then I, I want them to be able to tell other people and mm. I'm glad that they're telling me, but I'm really bad with the, like the, the experience of having a secret to keep mm. is actually slightly triggering for me. Like mm. that's, that's kind of how I felt about so many parts of my life. Uh, not just the sexual assault part. In fact, that I've I've been very kind of once once I had my initial and like epiphany, I've mm. actually been quite upfront about that in, mm. in lots of ways, um, more upfront than many other things. <laughs> but like secrets are not are not a, a, comfortable, a comfortable position thing. for me, mm. um, and so yeah, I'm I'm always I want people to be unburdened of their secrets, but I don't find it easy to be the person uh, that's providing mm. them with that service. Um, well, we, we, we're, we're, we'll, uh, we'll have to move towards the conclusion of this conversation because it's been um, a, a really, I've loved having it um, and I could really carry on forever. How long have we uh, gone for? We've gone over an hour. Oh my goodness, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's yeah. a significant show. Yeah, it, it, it is. In fact, I'm going to uh, save what we've got just so, so that I don't lose it because it's gone down to one bar now. I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing if you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book the way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it, sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, those kinds of things. You can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society, but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem, but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So... 
listen to those shows see if you like what you hear and if you do then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen before i ask you the last question i want to make sure that we've covered um something that we i think we have touched on but i'd like to hear your kind of more considered thoughts on on something that we talked about talking about before we started which is the intersection of caring Mm. and masculinity and i think we have we have touched on those themes but what what are your thoughts on those those the the other thing i'm doing which i didn't mention (laughs) before because i'm not busy enough um i'm in the really early stages of working on a show about uh growing up with a disabled parent which is uh yeah it was my experience and I've sort of been looking back on that and um that shows a children's show so it's about the relationship between me and my mum's walking stick um it's going to be really fun and lots of adventures the idea is that the walking stick comes to my room at night knocks on the door and takes me flying off on adventures whereas during the day it has to look after my mum and it's it's what we in the trade call a metaphor, that. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think there's something about the fact that there were times when I did have to take care of my mother. And she was a she was a very capable parent, you know. She she could only use one arm, but she still managed to change nappies and, and do all of the all of the practical stuff as well as being there emotionally. But there were were also times when I had to be in more of a caring role, especially as I got older. Um, There's that sort of weird ingredient where as a man people, well, not even as a man, it's like, you know, I think by the time I was 12 or 13, people would sort of talk to me about her. Right. You know, because she was the disabled person. Yeah. You know, be like, can she do this? And I'm like, I don't know, ask her. She speaks more languages than I do. (laughs) But yeah, so that was that was a really interesting element of growing up as a as a boy and as a young man, which I don't think every well not everyone has it, and I wonder whether that skill set because it is a skill set that you develop, whether that is something which has changed my relationship to masculinity and changed my relationship to being a man. Because there was no way that that, that caring wasn't going to happen. And, of course, my dad did a lot of it as well. So that was my role model. Right. Uh, you know, in as much as if, if he ever um, finds out that I consider him a role model, I'll never hear the end of it. So I'm not sending <laughs> him send a link, link to this. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I wonder if that's an ingredient. And I think still there's a part of my personality which maybe was nurtured by that experience, which is... Or does find it, I think, a lot easier to be in a caring role than a lot of men I've talked to and interviewed. Interesting. So I'm wondering right now how I how I deal with that um, and what that means for for the direction my work takes in the future. Yeah, it is. It is so interesting how those kind of. I mean, I I have had a, I had a very different upbringing f- to you and did not have to to play that kind of caring role but definitely my dad was the one who did a lot of the things that people would assume a mother might do mm. from the from the f- from uh actually you know he was retired so he was the one who was at home and my mum mm. went out to work and all of that stuff but 
to the point of like hugging like mm. my mum does not is not comfortable hugging mm. my dad is comfortable hugging you know like all of those kinds of kind of feminized or feminine uh behaviors mm. that we think of yeah. like i got from a man and as much as he's also a man so he's got patriarchal elements to him like i do feel like that was a a has a has been a useful mm. thing in in navigating this masculinity thing, which is not to say I've always navigated that correctly mm. either. I definitely have Ditto. lots to work on myself. <laughs> yeah, um, but it is interesting. Caring is not a role we are often supposed to see boys in, and mm. if, and I I really liked, and it's weird to say at this moment in time because he's recently not been quite as uh, much of a a, a role model and hero as I'd like him to be but Philip Pullman uh, wrote um, kind of a new book uh, after his dark materials mm. uh, La Belle Savage um, mm. which is part of the Book of Dust trilogy and that has a boy as the main character who is looking after a baby mm. the whole way through and his journey is all about care like his heroism is caring yeah like and that's definitely the intent of the book i believe and mm. the the side but like you know you're you're seeing different things valued like consideration caring support like all of these things are like that's the heroic thing in that book mm. for that boy to do and i i was like wow yeah know, this is this is the kind of boys i want boys to be reading mm. well do you know what i had when i was growing up was and i'm gonna a date myself and be embarrassed myself and you know expose myself as a as not a very cool person but charmed the original <laughs> the the og charm sure and um i don't think that makes you uncool either. yeah not the new one which is uh <laughs> there are some there are some good elements to it but i'm not sold yet but you know okay. i've only seen one episode but I was obsessed with it. And one of the really interesting things was, without making a big deal of it at all, they had a character there who, you know, he was a guardian angel for Holly Marie Combs' character. Well, for, for all of them. But he he married her. He His job as such was as a guide and as a carer and to kind of pick up the slack for these three kind of powerful women. And then he was you know he challenged this entire literal cosmic order in order to you know have a family with his wife he got the first paternity leave for an angel in the history (laughs) of the cosmos wow and he like you saw him kind of struggle with this this you know wanting to be in this caring nurturing role for his family wanting to be in a caring nurturing role at work you know in his in his function in the universe but it it was just really, really the first time I'd seen the that kind of power and dynamic in in media, um, and the you know the fact that being a dad was so central to his personality, and then the fact that a really cool woman liked him, even even though quotation marks yeah he was like in this caring supportive role right was just like you know. Psh- Right. brain explosion right because i was like does that even happen um, yeah i mean it's interesting isn't it like i mean as you, you alluded to earlier on like there are so few men often in in certainly in primary education mm. and it's, when i used to work with under fives i mean i was a man working with the under fives 
although there's occasional areas where you get sort of certain kinds of suspicion uh generally you're treated like you know like the messiah yeah you know, like <laughs> like you know you know because there are so few men working mm. in that area um and it's it's kind of radical to mm. be a man caring in this culture mm. and that's so sad yeah. isn't it i mean but it's also you know it's it's it, it is something that yeah that people want as well as mm. as like you were saying that young girls are saying we want boys to feel yeah. uh people do want people who care mm. like that's not everyone wants that sure yeah. but and it's but, not always safe to be that person is the thing isn't. is that's the really tricky stuff is i'm very aware that i go into these communities and i'm well i could be saying just like live in your feelings and it'll be fine and people will respect you more and it's like I think a lot of boys right now are moving between these worlds where some of these very aggressive behaviours are really, really rational survival strategies for some of the worlds they inhabit. Absolutely. And they're really, really uh, maladaptive in some of the other parts of their lives. Yeah. And that's a that's a problem that, you know, we need to address on a wider societal level because as, as an individual you, you've got to get through your day right absolutely and and when I think about being bullied at school that was because I showed feelings mm-hmm. like when I you know having looked back on it you know I've come to understand that I was vulnerable mm. um, for lots of complicated reasons but like bullies can smell vulnerability mm-hmm. and they will exploit it. Mm. And that's not to say that they're not bringing trauma to the, into the room themselves, mm. as you say. Yeah. Well, they can so, recognise you know, it for a reason. Right, why can they sense it exactly? Um, but it is not safe in some ways to, to feel emotions. Mm. And I guess, you know, my life journey has mm. been like trying to repress emotions because it wasn't safe mm. and then learning to take those repressions yeah. away again the fact they, that it's not safe is part of what makes it brave yeah i mean it's and it's not even like brave is it? like like some people can repress their emotions and some people can't and, mm. and and like i definitely would have i would have loved to have signed like the demon <laughs> uh, deal to get rid of my emotions or whatever like a fairy story mm. kid character would but like unfortunately there was no there was no devil to take away my emotions <laughs> um so they became transmuted in all different mm. kinds of ways and actually that's the part of the problem is that feelings aren't always safe as well like mm. anger yeah. is, is useful in some contexts and really dangerous to yourself as mm. much as other people in others so it's super oh, yeah. complicated so yeah i mean as i said it uh, just just well probably more than a minute ago like i could easily continue to have this conversation forever um but listeners you know, probably won't want to go that that <laughs> that, that that longer distance with us. Um, so the last question that I ask everybody is: Do you have anything to plug? Uh, if you are listening to this and you work at a university and you um, think that a conversation about consent that is really safe and boundaried but also really deep is something that your institution could benefit from, or actually we we're working with companies as well. Um, so if your workplace could benefit from that then the consent collective if you just google that we're if i do say so myself we're actually really good at this um 
mostly because everyone else is bad at it. So, um, but no, I'm I'm working with this really really amazing group of people who are using the arts and discussion and really good research to to make uh, an experience and a conversation which can be completely transport transformative for an organisation or a university or what what have you. And then, yeah, I'm in that weird phase where everything is early in development and nothing's ready to show anyone. But if people are interested, um, tanakamishi.co.uk is where I do all of my things. So that's show notes. (laughs) Yeah, it will be in the show notes for sure. Um, And then, oh yes, actually, the other thing which would be lovely to plug is that uh, I'm really interested in doing some research for a long-term project which uh, is about people who hear disclosures in their of disclosures of sexual violence in their daily lives at work because you know also in families and communities because they've got a particular role where a lot of those things come their way um so if you're that person that would it would be lovely to hear from from those people and just have a chat yeah, and they can um, they can find you to chat to you uh, on Twitter or like yeah the the website's the website, best place so I have a contact have page contact on my page website. On. Great, and I will put a link to that in the show notes as you uh, as you pointed out. The last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. Thank you for being here with us. It was really cool. Bye, everyone. And two quick additional updates from me relating to writing that I've been doing recently. First of all, there is a new piece of writing that I've done around gender. It's called What About the Women? It's available on Medium and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And I've recently written another piece about my father, an update to the ones that I wrote last year. So that's also available on Medium. It's called Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad and that particular piece is called waves if you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering you can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make it's as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can find getting better acquainted on twitter at 
GBA podcast. You can find it on Facebook at Getting Better Acquainted and you can find it anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. And if you want to email me personally, that's gbapodcast at gmail.com or I'm goosefat101 on Twitter. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>